When I was a child, the most feared words that I could hear were, you wait till your father gets home. Now, my mother was a wonderful Christian woman. She led me to the Lord when I was five years of, of age. But she wasn't much of a disciplinarian. I just don't think that she could bring herself to spank her own children with much vigor, and we often needed it. But she could and did threaten us with the wrath of Dad. And there was nothing worse in life for a six-year-old or an eight-year-old than waiting through the day for the wrath of Dad to fall. Now multiply that fear a hundredfold and you might have some sense of how Adam and Eve felt as they heard God pronounce sentence on the serpent. Because you have done this, you are more cursed than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Perhaps Adam and Eve saw the effects of this curse immediately before their very eyes. The serpent transformed from an alluring, attractive creature into a hissing, slithering, obnoxious snake. How did they feel as they awaited not the wrath of a human being, not the wrath of some human potentate, but the wrath of Almighty God who had created them and everything else around them. Well, we read the sentence that God pronounced on these first two human sinners in verses 16 through 19. Here in Genesis 3, read with me, Genesis 3 Verses 16 through 19. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are. And to dust you shall return. Now notice that no curse rained down on the first woman. And the curse seemed to glance off of Adam's shoulder, as it were, and fall to the ground. The ground was cursed for his sake, but he, Adam, was not cursed. Now these sentences that God pronounced 
on Eve and then Adam were the first great revelations of the kind of God that we have. They assure us that God will always do right. And that means that God will punish sin in righteous wrath. Be sure your sin will find you out. God always pays the wages that our sins earn. But God is also merciful and long-suffering. God did not curse the first humans for their crimes. He did not slay them post-haste with a lightning bolt from heaven. Rather, He gave them time to repent of their sins and to turn back to Him. He gave them opportunity to believe the good news, the gospel, which He had just announced to them. God has not changed since that day. He remains, on the one hand, a righteous and wrathful God, and yet on the other hand, He remains a merciful, long-suffering, and gracious God. We sang of Him. He invites us to come and to know His grace and to know His mercy and to know His salvation. Now, the sentences that God passed upon our first ancestors still, to this day, affect every female and every male. We cannot watch the scene that's portrayed before us in verses 16 through 19 as if we were watching some courtroom drama on television. As if those sentences had nothing to do with us. Every female shares in the sentence passed on Eve. And every male shares in the sentence passed on Adam. And so this morning as I preach, as I explain these sentences, what God did, you need to consider how these sentences passed on our first ancestors how they affect you, how they affect me. First, let's consider the sentence God passed on Eve. The sentence God passed on Eve was twofold. The first aspect was pain. Pain. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Every mother knows the reality of labor pain. The best description of labor pain that I have ever heard comes from the comedian Carol Burnett. She said, if you want to... If you want to feel what labor pain feels like, take your lower lip and stretch it over your head. I think she was talking primarily to men. You see, the average guy doesn't really get it 
unless they've had a kidney stone. My understanding, that's the only pain that's worse. I've had a couple, but I've never been pregnant. So I don't have any comparison. I do remember this. I do remember my wife in the middle of the night. I don't remember if she woke me up. But turning to me and saying, I just realized I can't stop this in the middle of her first pregnancy. Notice that the sentence that God passed on Eve indicates that God increased or multiplied the the pain of childbirth. It's very possible that God increased the pain of human birth beyond that of the other animals. An article in the American Scientist magazine cited a study of 2,500 full-term births. The human mothers labored an average of nine hours. In comparison, apes and monkeys give birth in about two hours. Multiply it, indeed. Others believe that the word multiply in verse 16 applies beyond birth. That there will be an increase of sorrow in everything that has to do with children. Not just bearing children, but raising children. I wonder if God was relating how the sin nature of children would affect the relationship between a child and his or her mother. Now certainly fathers are affected as well, but as I ponder this, I I think of what Simeon said to Mary, the mother of Jesus, just a few days after his birth. He said, a sword will pierce through your own soul. Also, and think of that first mother. Think of Eve. Do you not think that a sword pierced through her own soul when her first son Cain murdered her second son Abel? No one in this world has the ability to wring our hearts like our own children. Was it not fitting that God passed this sentence on the first mother For the crime of taking that forbidden fruit and then offering it to her husband. The second aspect of the, the sentence that God passed on Eve is desire. Desire. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, what is this desire? It's interesting. The word that's translated desire here in verse 16 is used only two other times in the Bible. And each one of those times gives us a clue 
as to what the word means here in verse 16. The first of those is in the Song of Solomon. I'm not going to ask you to turn. This one as much as you would expect. The word there in, in Song of Solomon expresses a desire for a person of the opposite sex. It includes sexual desire. And so to put put it in terms that our culture today would understand, a woman wants a man. Now I realize that that idea is politically incorrect to the extreme. Gloria Steinem, one of the matriarchs of modern feminism, made famous the slogan, a woman needs a man like a fish needs, some of you know it, a bicycle. Now, since I'm not an expert on what modern women want, I did some research. And one article I read was by a secular female psychotherapist who specializes in young women ages 20 to 30. And she began her article by quoting an Instagram post. And I thought this was very interesting. Here's the quote. The smartest thing a woman can do is to never need a man. And it had 272 likes which I don't know if that's a lot or not. But this psychotherapist pushed back against that idea. Her article tried to tell young women that it's okay, even normal, for a woman to need a man, heaven forbid. And she shared some of the common sentiments that she heard in her practice. And so I'm going to quote her quoting some of her patients. Here's the first. Well, things are good for the most part. I love my job and friends, and I'm really proud that I have done X, Y, and Z, but I still feel lonely sometimes. I can't help it. If I'm totally honest, I'd really love to be in a relationship. I guess I need more hobbies. Here's the second. I know I should be happy alone, but I'm just not. I think about getting married and starting a family a lot, all the time, actually. And here's the final one. The problem is I'll be on a date, and within the first 20 minutes, I start imagining him as my future husband, what kind of dad he might be, that kind of thing, unquote. My point is that despite what modern feminists have been preaching for more than 50 years, the majority of females, even in our modern progressive culture, still want a man. Now, here in this context, a woman wanting a man is actually counterintuitive, okay? It runs counter to the flow of the context here. I mean, think about it. The first part of verse 16 promises multiplied pain in childbirth. How many of you ladies can add 2 plus 2? Okay? You get where I'm going? Okay? If a woman wants a man, 
she wants to marry that man, if she wants to have sex with that man, that means children. At least it did up until 1960. Okay? 1960, the pill was invented. For the first time, there was, was actual contraception that worked. But for, for the vast majority of the history of the human race, if a woman wanted a man, she pretty much knew that meant children. And according to this, children meant multiplied pain. And so you could very easily see a woman saying, nope, not for me, I don't want that. And yet God says that will be her desire. And then this desire for a man is also counterintuitive for another reason that's stated at the end of verse 16, and he shall rule over you. And that word rule there in verse 16 means rule. I know, that's counterintuitive. I, I normally don't say stuff like that. But that, I mean, it's used of Joseph rolling o- ruling over Egypt. It's used of Solomon ruling over the, the nations that surrounded Israel. And so what we find in many cases is that a woman wants a man, but that man will dominate her. And we'll talk more about that in, in a minute here. So that's the first usage of that word desire, the first meaning of it in Scripture. But there's a second usage of the word translated desire that, sex, uh, that, that suggests another aspect to this desire. So flip over one page to Genesis chapter 4. Most of us, I think, know the story of Cain and Abel from our Sunday school days. Cain and Abel were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. And chapter 4 recounts that God accepted Abel's worship. God accepted Abel's sacrifice. The New Testament, the book of Hebrews, tells us that was because it was of faith. It was offered in faith. God rejected Cain's worship, rejected his sacrifice. Apparently, it was not offered in faith. And this rejection by God caused Cain to be angry. And notice what God says to Cain about his anger in verses 6 and 7. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should, there's that other word we just saw, rule over it. Now the word picture there in verse 7 portrays sin, pictures sin like a wild animal lying in wait, ready to pounce on Cain. 
And it desires to overcome him. It desires to master him, to control him. And God encourages Cain rather to resist sin and instead rule over the sin rather than have the sin control him and master him. So take the meaning of those two words, the word desire and the word rule, take them from Genesis chapter 4 back into Genesis chapter 3 and let's plug them into verse 16, okay? The sentence that God pronounced on the first woman means that she will not only want a man, but she will also desire to to master him, to overcome him, to control him. Now, those of you that have been here for the previous studies that we've done through Genesis chapters 2 and 3, you understand that the woman was made for the man. She was made to be a helper who was his complement. Adam was given the headship in the relationship. He was the leader And while Eve was in a state of innocence, she embraced that role without reservation, without problem. But now God has passed sentence on her and something has changed within her and all of her daughters. And it's a manifestation of the sin nature which overtook the human race at the fall. Now she doesn't just want a man, she wants to control that man. She wants to have the upper hand in the home. She chafes under the leadership of her husband. Now, we joke about these things. We say, yeah, the man is the head of the home, but the the wife is the, the neck that turns him. You heard that one? You know, if you watch a lot of sitcoms, they, they, it seems like every sitcom has a, a henpecked husband, right? This is just the common joke. And we joke about it because it's a reality in many of our homes. That struggle between the husband and the wife. It certainly explains, I think, what feminism has been preaching for the last 50 years. But there's one more element to this judgment. Again, in the the final phrase here in verse 16, the woman will want to be in charge, she'll want to master her husband, but he will rule over her. Now, historically, I want you to think of the place of of women in many societies. 
especially societies that had no real impact by God's word. In many of those cultures, in many of those societies, women were treated little better than cattle. In fact, legally, in many of those countries, they were called chattel. Think of how women, even today, are treated in Muslim nations. And even in a modern, progressive nation like ours, how many women tolerate being abused by a man? Think of the Me Too movement just a couple of years ago, what that was all about. Now, I need to be clear because I I don't want you to take what I've said and and push it in the wrong direction, okay? So I I need to make two points very clearly at this point. Number one, a wife's submission to her husband's leadership is God's plan, okay? That was not due to sin. It was not due to God's curse on sin or a punishment for sin. This was part of how God intended the home to function from creation. Okay, so that's one thing. On the other hand, God's sentence upon Eve and her daughters does not give license to any man to lord it over his wife or abuse her in any way. The New Testament teaching is clear. I I preached it not that long ago. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. No man can say, I have the right to treat my wife like cattle. I have the right to treat my wife however I want. No, you have the right to treat your wife the way Christ treated the church. Complete self-sacrifice. So this was the sentence that God passed on the first woman and all her daughters after her. In verses 17 through 19, God actually had much more to say in the sentence that he passed on Adam. Now, one reason that this sentence is longer is that God included the verdict before the sentence. Why did God judge Adam? He tells us at the beginning of verse 17, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. See, the New Testament tells us very clearly that Adam had no excuse. Adam was not deceived. The implication is that Eve was deceived. And in fact, if you look at the scene here, like a courtroom drama, when the judge asked, guilty or not guilty, what did Eve say? The serpent deceived me. And it seems like God bought her sentence or or her plea, at least partially, because no curse rained down on the woman. 
But here's the irony of it. When God pronounced sentence on the woman, it also impacted the man. Because he was not willing to take leadership in that relationship, at that critical moment when Eve said, hey, take a bite of this, men for the rest of human existence are going to struggle. We're going to struggle in our homes. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension between a man and his woman because a wife wants to be in control. It's just the sin nature. Adam got what was coming to him. And we all did along with him, men. Well, the sentence that God passed on that first man and on all of his sons after him was threefold. And we can summarize the first aspect of this punishment in the single word curse. Curse. Cursed is the ground for your sake. God also details some of the aspects of the curse in verse 18. Both thorns and thistles, it, the ground, shall bring forth for you. As I mentioned at the beginning of my message, this curse seemed to be aimed at Adam, but it, it seemed to bounce off his, his shoulder, as it were, and, and it fell to the ground, and the ground was cursed for his sake. Now that word ground there is an interesting word. Uh, sometimes it means the dirt. Okay? Sometimes it means land. As in, I own this land. Sometimes it means land as in, this land is my land, this land is your land. Okay? It means the country that we live in. Okay? It means our nation. And sometimes this word means the entire earth, all the land. And I think here when God cursed the ground for Adam's sake, it meant all of those things. Now, first of all, it started off with the dirt, the dirt that grew things. God, the, the, the first part of this curse was agricultural, if you will. Can you imagine what it was like in the garden to be a farmer? You just kind of went out every morning and picked what you needed and had breakfast. And that was it. Now, it, it said that, that Adam was supposed to tend the garden. I think he had to, to kind of keep things back because they grew so fast and, and, and bore so much. All of that stopped. Now the ground was cursed. Now it took labor to get food out of the ground. Uh, I think then also, if you take the context here in verses 17 and 18, it seems like God is talking in a very very specific, detailed, agricultural sense. But if you get into the context of the entire Bible, the meaning of this word grows and grows, right? Because we know that the curse didn't just affect 
agriculture. It affected everything. The entire earth. The word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8 is the Greek word cosmos. And it means cosmos. It means everything. I mean, think of it this way. Adam was given dominion over the earth by God. And when Adam sinned, everything that was under his dominion was ruined. It was cursed. In verse 18, God mentions some very specific things. He talks about thorns and thistles. And I believe that at this point, I don't believe there were thorns and thistles before this point. So at this point, trees and plants and bushes began to have structures that battled back against man. When was the last time you got stuck real good by a thorn? It's fun, isn't it? How many of you think there was poison ivy in the garden before the fall? (laughs) No way. You see, now nature, which had supplied man abundantly, began to battle man. And it wasn't just that, that, that certain species began to have these structures that battled back against man. I think at this point there were, there were new plants that did nothing but battle man. For the last eight or ten years that I've, I've worked uh, at, the, at the university, I have been in a windowless office. It's not real fun. Uh, you know, every hour or so I go out and, and look out a window But since I took this new job, I have this nice big window. And when I moved into the office, in front of this nice big window, there was this huge tree. It was beautiful. Well, I've only been in that office about six weeks. And about three weeks ago, that tree started to die. And as of today, it is totally dead. What killed it? Mistletoe. Now, you know, we're, we're coming up on Christmas, you know, and, and, and mistletoe's kind of a romantic thing at, at Christmas. But listen, mistletoe is a parasite. And it killed that tree. Thanks, Adam. Thanks a lot. That's what Adam did for us brought that kind of a curse. I read, a, I read the, the, the sermon that Spurgeon preached on this text, and he multiplies the applications of this in about six or eight different directions. Any direction you can think about, the curse has affected our environment and how we live because of Adam's first sin. Well, the first aspect of this sentence passed on Adam, the curse, 
on the ground, on the, on the earth, on the environment, led directly to the second aspect of the curse, which we can also summarize in one word, and that's the word labor. Labor. Notice the end of verse 17. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The old King James Version translates that phrase, in sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of your life. It's the very same word that God used in sentencing Eve. Same word. Notice back in verse 16. I will greatly multiply your sorrow. And your conception, same word. It means labor or toil in both of those places. Listen, Adam and Eve received the same sentence. But that sentence was fitted to Eve in her role, and that sentence was fitted to Adam in his role. With Eve, God increased, multiplied, her pain in labor, her sorrow in labor, her labor in labor. With Adam, God put labor into work. Okay? Stick with me. I'm not mumbling. Okay? I meant what I just said. God put labor into work. Okay, I think it's almost impossible for us to imagine what work was before the fall. See, you need to make sure you're, you don't have the wrong idea. Some people believe that work is part of the curse. No, that's not true. See, back in Genesis chapter 2, before the first sin, before the fall... God told Adam to tend the garden. Work has always been part of human flourishing, even before the fall. I mean, think of the good part of work. Think of that sense of accomplishment that you get, of a job well done. Think of the purpose in life that work gives to many people. And think simply of the, of the results of work, getting something done that needs to, to get done. All of those good things were there. Let me, let me put it this way. In the garden, Adam worked without breaking a sweat. That's what's implied here. Work was a joy. When Adam got up in the morning, he, he looked forward to the day and what it would bring and the work that he would do in tending the garden. But that all changed when God pronounced this sentence. Work became wearisome and worrisome. For the first time, nature battled back against man. Work became dangerous, even deadly. Let me give you just one example. In the 1930s, the Hoover Dam was built. Any of you know anything about the Hoover Dam? There's enough concrete in the Hoover Dam 
to build a roadway from San Francisco to New York City. It's 60 stories tall. Now, I looked it up. I thought maybe it might be the biggest dam in the world, but it's not. It's in the top 10, I think. But this was built in the 1930s. 2100 worked building that dam at a time when good jobs were hard to find in this country, in the middle of the Depression. And 96 of those men died building that dam. Now, down through history, many men have died at their jobs, but many men have been crippled. They've lost a leg. They've lost an arm. They've lost a hand. They've broken their back. The man that built the Brooklyn Bridge designed it, led in its construction, suffered bends because they didn't understand what it was back then. And the impact was on him for the rest of his life after he built the Brooklyn Bridge. Wearisome and worrisome, dangerous and deadly, that's what work became because of Adam's sin. And then finally, a final aspect to this sentence found in verse 19, and that's death. Death. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, certainly these words don't apply just to Adam. They apply to all human beings. But what this verse emphasizes is that they apply to all human beings because of what Adam did. And I preached this a a few weeks ago, and I, I can't go back to it. But because of Adam's sin, death passed upon all human beings. We all now face that deadly specter. And then again, the way in which God pronounces this final aspect of the sentence reveals just how fitting this punishment is. God created man from the dust. You remember? And when man dies, he will return to the dust. Now, we all hire funeral directors to try to stave that off. And what do they do? Well, they they pump us full of embalming fluid, formaldehyde, and then they put us in a vault, at least here in this state, that's what they have to do. Doesn't make any difference. When our souls separate from our bodies at death, we decompose and we return to dust sooner or later. Father Abraham 
Father Adam, excuse me, brought death upon all of us. Now, I want to conclude where I began. In pronouncing judgment on Adam and Eve, God remembered mercy. Women do indeed face painful labor to bear children. But in John 16 and verse 21, Jesus says, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And every family knows that joy. Children are a heritage from the Lord, the psalmist tells us. They are a gift from God. And children may at times be a source of sorrow. They may at times be a a source of difficulty or exasperation. But surveys have shown for years that the most fulfilled human beings on earth are married parents. As I mentioned, in many marriages, there's a struggle to see who will lead the home. The sentence that God pronounced is a reality, but when both husband and wife determine to live by the principles of God's Word, the marriage and the home is a place of comfort and joy and solace. As for Adam's sentence, the ground was indeed cursed for his sake and all the ways that we've described. But I want you to notice that even as God pronounced that sentence, he indicated that the ground would continue to yield produce. A man's work would be worrisome and wearisome. It would be dangerous, perhaps even deadly. But it would not be futile. God would continue to provide. And God provides rest and strength through sleep. And our bodies recuperate every day from the work that we do. And even in pronouncing the death sentence on mankind, God gave promise to them. Because he said that the woman would have pain in child birth. In pronouncing this sentence, the sentence of death, he also spoke of new life. And God gives us that new life. But here's God's greatest mercy in the face of the curse that he pronounced that day. It was sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to bear the curse for us. Jesus bore the curse in every particular. Did sin bring pain in childbirth? Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus suffered much more to bring many sons to glory. Did sin bring conflict in marriage? Hebrews tells us to consider the conflict with sinners that Jesus endured. Are thorns a part of the curse? Jesus wore a crown of thorns the night he was crucified. 
Did the curse bring sweat? Jesus sweat great drops of blood, as it were, in the garden before his crucifixion. Did the curse bring death? Then Jesus bore that death for you and for me. Galatians 3.13 puts it this way. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Would you be saved from the curse of God this morning, particularly the death that the curse pronounced? Then come to Jesus. I end this service where we began. Then come to Jesus. Have you trusted Jesus to deliver you from the effects of the curse? Particularly death, eternal death. You can do that today. You can run to Christ. You can come to Him. You can know deliverance ultimately from everything that we've talked about this morning. But there's only one way that it can happen in your life, and that is through trusting Jesus Christ and Him alone to deliver you, to rescue you. Have you taken that step? You see a bunch of people with shirts on this morning that say, I have decided. Have you decided?